2: Specifically, the renewed interest in investing by so-called retail investors, otherwise known as Main Street. By definition, retail investors are considered to be non-professional investors who generally invest much smaller amounts in comparison to larger institutional investors. Retail investors tend to possess varying levels of experience and sophistication, but at a high level, they're expected to be real people, not investment firms or computer-driven trading strategies. According to an April 2020 poll by Gallup, only about 55% of American households own any stocks at all. And for many, that stock ownership starts and stops with their company's 401k plan. In fact, according to a 2016 study by the Federal Reserve Board, only 16% of Americans actually own stocks in taxable brokerage accounts. That is, those not earmarked exclusively for retirement purposes. Lastly, according to a 2016 study conducted by NYU, 84% of the total number of stocks outstanding and available for trading were owned and controlled by just 10% of the U.S. population, which we can also assume to be the richest households in the country. And that says nothing of the disparities in wealth distribution among non-white households as well. However, when polled, most people will list stock ownership as one of the top contributors to building up long-term wealth. So, why aren't more people investing? Well, for those of you who have been listening to this podcast since its inception, you know the very first thing I'll point to is the information gap. I firmly believe that having access not just to information, but to quality information, makes all of the difference in getting more people, especially younger would-be investors, off of the sidelines and into the markets. And recently, there's certainly been a renewed interest among younger investors, leveraging the power of social media to share their best ideas conduct investment research, and wield the powers of their collective wallets to really make some waves in the stock market. With all that said, there's been a turning of the tide over the past 12 plus months that certainly caused a stir and threatens to disrupt the status quo for days to come. The subgroup of retail investors out there who enjoy poring over research, tracking markets, and trading on their own, we oftentimes refer to them as do-it-yourselfers. And since the do-it-yourself investor is not typically the same person who's calling up a financial planner like myself and saying, hello, I need help, there's certainly conversations happening out there in the world that I'm just not privy to. So I decided to call up someone who is and dig in a little deeper on this trend. For those who are not familiar, The Motley Fool is an an online investment research platform which creates and disseminates proprietary stock research to individual investors and, in their words, make the world smarter smarter happier, and richer. Chris Hill oversees the Motley Fool's network of podcasts and audio programming and is the host of both the Motley Fool Money and Market Foolery podcast, one of which actually shows up number one in the business investing category in Apple Podcasts, by the way. Chris also teaches some online classes and has narrated at least one audiobook to date, which I'm a huge fan of, by the way. So with that brief introduction, welcome Chris Hill to the Tech Money Podcast.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I was really thrilled to get this invitation.
2: Well, I was thrilled that you said yes. Um, So I certainly appreciate you making the time in your schedule. I know you're a busy guy. And by the way, the book I was referring to is The Psychology of Money, which I know you had a little bit of influence on and that sort of thing. But I breezed through your gigantic resume a little bit in my introduction there. But I know you've done a ton more. What did I miss?
3: You know, in terms of this conversation, you certainly hit on the most relevant stuff I've been at the Motley for more than twenty years, and I would say for the first ten or so, I was doing stuff more on the media relations and communication side of things because that's my educational background. But in two thousand and nine that's when we started Motley Full money uh, first as just a weekly twelve to fifteen minute podcast, and then the following year expanded it and started offering it to radio stations. So it's the one of our podcasts that goes to radio stations every week. But thank you for mentioning the psychology of money. That's I've certainly gotten a lot of attention on Twitter over the past few yeah. months for doing the audio book, the audio version of Morgan Housel's really great book.
2: Well, for all the things you can get known quickly on Twitter for, I would say narrating an audio book <laughs> about money is probably the least dangerous among them. So not yes. a bad company to be in. But you mentioned you've been doing the podcast for some time now, like 2009 is like before podcasting was podcasting, right? And so the Motley Fool brand has been around for quite a while. I've read a couple of the books. I listened, as I mentioned, to uh, the Motley Fool Money podcast, which we'll talk about in a second. But how has the model evolved through the years just to get us started? Because I imagine, you know, like I said, podcasting wasn't even podcasting back in '09.
3: It really wasn't, it was one of those things when we started, we really had to explain to a lot of people, including family members, what a podcast (laughs) is. And hopefully folks don't have that issue today. But The Motley Fool um, previously had a couple of different radio shows, first on commercial radio and then on NPR, and stopped doing radio in early 2006. And then fast forward to late 2008, the Great Recession was just starting. And we were trying to figure out a lot of things at our company, including whether or not we should get back into radio. Mm -hmm. And I sort of made the pitch to the guy who was my boss at the time to say, look, if we ever think we want to get back into radio, we should consider a podcast first. Because there are a lot of things with radio that you have to deal with, including, by the way, making sure that the show is the exact same length every time that you don't have to do with podcasts. So let's see if we can do a good podcast first before we decide whether or not we want to expand back into radio or something like that. So it really started out in February of 2009 as something where we said, okay, we're going to try this for a couple months. If it works, if people are listening and and we feel like we're doing a pretty good job of it, we'll keep it going. But if not, we're just going to shut it down.
2: Hmm. And for those who aren't familiar with the term radio. It's actually the thing in your car's (laughs) audio cluster that it flips on that pisses you off on your way to to try and sync your Bluetooth and Apple CarPlay and all the other stuff. So for anybody who's too young to know what in the heck is this radio thing that Chris keeps talking about, it's just gone the, the age of all the other stuff that we talk about, like cassettes and CDs and blu-rays and everything else Um, vcrs vc oh god vcrs all that good stuff and i'm not even that old and we've just like completely done away with everything but anyway so i really i mentioned the motley fool money which is the podcast that i personally listen to on a regular basis which i really like because you guys are talking about companies to do-it-yourself retail investors i presume but it's not dumbed down like for lack of a better way to say it you're not talking down to anybody, I guess. And it's not too technical either. So, you know, if I have like a moderate understanding of how the markets work and the key metrics or KPIs or whatever company that drive market returns, I can follow along and actually learn something about the companies I may hold in my portfolio. Or, you know, maybe I live in an area, I work for one of those companies, you know, we've got a pretty heavy tech presence in Northern Virginia where you are. And like a lot of those companies that you guys are discussing are here. So it's reasonable that a lot of their employees are actually like here and listening to you guys podcast. And it's a little bit different from the story maybe that we're constantly being told internally or telling each other internally. Was that initially the goal in launching this particular podcast or were you just really looking for a chance to sit around and talk all day with a couple of your buddies?
3: I mean, it was a couple of sort of combination of both. We definitely listened to the way other media you know, companies would talk about stocks. And we were struck by the fact that the conversations happening, for example, on Bloomberg TV, mm-hmm. not to disparage Bloomberg TV, they got a lot of smart people there, but the way that they were talking about stocks on television, on their podcast, was just different from the way we talked about it. And so when we were putting together the idea for Motley Fool Money, We definitely had that in mind, that we were going to talk about stocks the way that we talk about them. We weren't going to get caught up in some of the more technical terms. By the same Mm -hmm. token, we didn't want to dumb it down. We didn't want to make it so basic that people who were interested in investing, the people who owned stocks felt like we were talking down to them. So in that first year or two, we would actually get email from people saying things like, hey, I really like your show, but I would like it more if every week you could do a segment that was just explaining a financial term, like a basic a money 101 thing. Hmm. And I had to write back to those people and say, I really appreciate you listening. We're not going to do that.
2: <laughs> yeah, this isn't your show.
3: Right. And for the same reason, we would also get emails at the other end where we'd say, you know, I like your show. It would be great if you did a deep dive every week on a narrow industry, if you did a deep dive on biotechnology, it's like, no, that's not what this show is. And so that whenever I talk to people about podcasts, one of the things I always say is you need to figure out what your show is Mm -hmm. and what it's not, because there will always be people who listen to your show and want you to do something additional. And if you really is one of those situations where if you try and please everyone, then you're going to lose a lot of people.
2: That's a very good point. Yeah, I'm thinking about our own inbox here that tends to get suggestions on things that, you know, frankly, if I, if you just send an email and ask, like, we could probably just send a response with three sentences that answer your question and save us from having to create a podcast episode as a one-off, but neither here nor there. But in that, you mentioned that Bloomberg TV had sort of a, an approach of speaking nerdiness above the heads of most of the people who are watching. And frankly, you know, as you know, their goal is to sell their Bloomberg terminals. It's not necessarily to educate and inform the majority of the world. But for you guys, like teaching and helping the retail investor is the thing that you're focused on as your business model, right? Why not just sell your research and your best trade ideas to institutional clients or professional traders instead? Because, you know, as I visit the site, and I listen to your podcast, this is like, legitimate hours the team is putting in here, right? You've done real legitimate work. You've got CFAs, you know, charter financial analysts who are talking about these things. These are experienced Wall Street guys. So why not sell it to Wall Street instead of Main Street?
3: You know, that is an idea that has come up in the past. And I would never say never, like, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh no, we'll never do that. Like it's entirely possible. That's something we would do somewhere down the road. I think for us, it's a couple of things. One, it starts with David and Tom Gardner, the co-founders of the company, Mm -hmm. and sort of their mindset and their mission, as you said in the intro, it's not to make Wall Street analysts smarter, happier, and richer. It's to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. That said, we do get email from time to time from people who work on Wall Street, who listen to the show. Maybe they subscribe to a service that sort of thing. So I think for us, we're just more interested in helping to close that gap that you talked about in your intro, Malcolm, with everything we know about the benefits of long-term investing, uh, the benefits of compounding interest over time, and what that can do to help people build wealth, build their financial independence. And if we can get people, particularly when they're younger, and they have so many more decades ahead of them than someone like me in his 50s, then they're going to be even better off. And so that's a big part of why we're focused on individual folks.
2: It's interesting that you mentioned the long-term focus, because essentially what I was thinking about when I reached out to you and asked you to come on was the fact that I'm I'm so torn on this so-called retail investor revolution that we're watching happen in the markets and you know CNBC won't shut up about. And then I thought about the episode you did not too long ago where you interviewed, I hope I don't butcher his name, but Dan uh,
3: Dan Ariely.
2: Ariely. And he's a professor of psychology, I think, at Duke, right? And he made the case that people who are just now coming to the markets and started investing for the first time in 2020 or 2021 are actually being set up for failure in some ways in that they expect the market to go gangbusters like this all the time, right? And they don't actually see the inherent risk embedded in the markets. And the thing that really jumped out to me was he likened it to a person going to Vegas for the first time walking into a casino, hitting it really big their first night there. And then from that moment on, they're expecting every single time they go to Vegas, they'll win big. And as a consequence, they're going to keep chasing that outcome forever and ever instead of realizing that it was luck the first time and maybe not very much skill at all. And so Ariely pointed out, obviously, a recipe for financial failure, but it's also a recipe for unhappiness because you're constantly chasing that feeling. And that really struck a chord with me and kind of informs my personal opinion on it. But anyway, so my question after all that is, is there anything that we as professionals in this space can do to help curb that irrational exuberance? Or is there just a generation of investors who are in trouble? And that's that on that.
3: So I love this question because it speaks to the things that don't show up on the balance sheet. It doesn't Mm -hmm. speak to the underlying business of the companies we're interested in buying shares of or the management at that company or anything like that. It speaks to mindset, expectations, and all those important things that Morgan Housel wrote about in his book. I think about 2008, 2009, sort of the Great Recession as a time when I know we were doing this at The Motley Fool. I know people in your profession were doing it as well, doing a lot of hand-holding, doing a lot of helping People understand that, unfortunately, the market goes down. It goes down dramatically at times. It can mm-hmm. stay down for a year or more. I think the period that we're going through now is the opposite of that. It's not hand-holding. It's almost like you're holding your hands up in front of someone, you know, trying to stop them and saying, whoa, 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 whoa. You need to understand this is not how it normally is. We got a question recently from someone who just started investing in the past year or so. I forget the company that this guy was asking about, but his question was, do you think this stock could 10x in the next three years? Wow. Do you think this stock could go up 10 times in value in the next three years? And I think the first thing I said was, with all due respect, this is an insane question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying you're an insane person, but this is an insane set of expectations that you're layering on this because the context is that the stock market doubles in value roughly every seven years. So I think the time we're going through right now is really just trying to help people understand what happened over the past year. If you started investing last spring and you have stocks in your portfolio, as you almost certainly do, that have tripled in a year, have quadrupled in a year, um, yeah, your expectations are out of whack. And you, you need to just figure out a way to to reset your expectations And think five years out, 10 years out.
2: Yeah, I'm not a uh, trained psychologist like Ariely. So I have no idea how to help people reset those expectations either, right? Like I get occasionally the call or the email from the person who's looking for an advisor and they want somebody to help them pick stocks that are going to 10x in three years. And so I'll immediately put on my nerd hat and start talking about the rule of 72. Like you mentioned, where the market, you know, you can reasonably expect within about seven years to double your money in the market, right? And the broader market too. We're talking about the S and P 500, and that immediately turns people off, and they say, "Never mind, we're 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 fine." <laughs> and so, fortunately, we've structured a model well where we'll work on the plan itself for you. And if you are one of those people who has those outra- outrageous expectations, you go and do the investing side of it yourself, right? I have a feeling the majority of those people at some point will boomerang back and say, "You know what?" forget it like the 7 or 8% average annual return you told me I could expect that's a little more reasonable now than this roller coaster ride I've been on but we shall see but you know on the flip side of it right one could make the argument that the financial media just doesn't like to see anyone impinging on their turf right the financial media has the power to move markets make fortunes make or break careers on wall street right and now there's a force called the redditors if you will there's a force Threatening to up in that, and that's why they've been so vocal with their criticisms right there that's the opposite argument, which maybe there's some fact to it I don't know you know it's probably one of those things where there's some correctness on both sides, but you know it remains to be seen. I'm just a little bit concerned with people's uh unrealistic expectations there
3: well, I think it shows up pretty much everywhere. I mean, I see it on financial television. I do see it online in communities like Reddit, and I see it in our own membership. And again, particularly for people who are new to the market, if that's all you know, you think, well, this is how it always is. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, the flip side happens as well. There are people who started investing in early 2008. And then over the next 18 months, the market basically went straight down and those people took their money out of the stock market and never put it back in. And that's unfortunate because we know what the market did over the next decade.
2: So I want to push a little further, dive a little deeper or double click on that, whatever the corporate buzzword phrase I'm supposed to say here is. Because like while Americans in 2008 are following the 2008 financial crisis, right, most people gravitated to annuities with income guarantees and passive index investing. Those kind of things that were considered safe, right, following 2008, that was the rational or irrational groupthink that happened and kind of moved this wave of people as we pulled our way out of the the 08 economic crisis. And the number of households that own stocks has risen slowly since then, but not by a lot. So when we talk about wealth distribution in this country, right, what we've effectively been left with is an investor class and a worker class. The folks in 08 who had excess cash and could afford to buy at a discount made out great, right? They went in, bought the market as it was crumbling, you know, deep into the 30s and added to their already massive portfolios. Whereas I always like to say the haves got heavier and the have nots got naughtier, right? And so I think much of the excitement that we've seen over the past year or so of people wanting to get into the markets and make some quick cash, that 10x, you know, that we're talking about is really folks looking to upset the status quo. Any thought on that?
3: I absolutely think that some of what we saw over the past few months on Reddit, there was a certain amount of anger that fueled it for some of those people. And I totally understand that. I just think it's a dangerous game and probably the wrong game to play to invest so that you can punish someone, so that you can Mm -hmm. stick it to hedge funds, you know, that sort of thing. Again, there are people. You and I are having this conversation. um, Shares of GameStop are down about 20% today. Mm -hmm. It's still up more than 700% since the beginning of January. So (laughs) depending on what time you bought shares of GameStop, uh, you're probably still doing pretty well. But uh, I just think that to the extent that people can take emotion out of it, which is so hard to do. It's hard to do at work. It's hard to do at school, in relationships. And it's certainly hard to do when it comes to a touchy subject like money. But the more you can take emotion out of it, the better off you're going to be in the
2: long run. Speaking of Reddit, right, because it was just, I don't know, the last 12 months or something less than that, where the majority of the world just became aware of the Wall Street bets subreddit and then folks flocking to it. It blew up all of a sudden. The Fed has said in a few instances that it wants to get more involved in regulating the way that investment advice is being disseminated online in these various social media platforms. What's your take on that? Do you think these groups getting together online to share ideas are doing something wrong?
3: Let me preface this by saying I'm not a lawyer, so I can't speak to the legality of any of it, but I did sort of chuckle a couple of months ago when the Reddit story with GameStop was breaking, Mm -hmm. and there were some people in the media who were treating this like it was something brand new. Hmm. And I just thought, no, online forums for talking about stocks and investing have been around since the 90s. So we had that at The Motley Fool. We still have it today, although our business model is different now than it was then. So I think that it's like a lot of things in life where you can have the sharing of information online among individual investors. It can be reasonable. It can be analytical. It can very sort of unemotional in its focus. And it's kind of like going to a college football game. You know, Mm -hmm. you can sit in the stands and watch a college football game. And if you're sitting with people who are smart, and they're just sort of watching the action, yeah, they have a a rooting interest in what's happening. But they're not going crazy. And somewhere in that stadium, you can find the crazy fans. You You can find the people who maybe they're a little drunk, or something, and just they're all emotion. They're not focused on anything fact-based that's happening on the field. And I I think that shows up online as well with the people who are just there to promote penny stocks. You know, the tricky thing about the online is how sure are you of who's doing the talking? What are their interests, both emotional and financial? Because there may be people who bought a stock at a lower price. They're looking to pump it up a little bit and get more people to buy it just so they can exit it. So I think anytime you can get a sense of what are the interests of this person, what, you know, do they own shares of it? I think anytime you get disclosures, it's one of the things I appreciate about CNBC, because I've been watching more and more CNBC as I've been stuck at home for the past year, is I think that network does a good job of putting up disclosures of their guests, of their hosts, and that sort of thing.
2: That is a good point. They do normally tell you. This guy, Chris Hill, who's talking about Tesla, his company owns shares in Tesla or whatever. That That's a fair point. I don't know how often people pay attention to it, but at least to your point, it's being disclosed. But like, I'm thinking about politics aside for a second, as best you possibly can, right? Everybody has a political opinion, whether we choose to admit it or not. But do you think it's the job of the government to step in here and regulate and do anything? Or is it another case of the free markets regulating themselves? You know, our market is Built on this premise that everybody has access to the same free-flowing, publicly available information to trade on, right? So if that's the case, is it the job of the Fed or any other regulator at the state level or whatever to step in and do something here? I haven't seen anything so far that strikes me
3: as, well, the government needs to step in and fix that. Let me go back to something you just sort of touched on, which is... Mm -hmm. In 2001, it was either 2000 or 2001, there was a proposal before the SEC, the shorthand was Reg FD, stood for Regulation Fair Disclosure, and the basic idea behind Reg FD, that the SEC was, considered they were going to vote on whether or not to pass this, the basic idea was, was what you just said. Everybody gets access to the information at the same time. Before that... Mm-hmm. Companies could have conference calls that were closed to individual investors. They they would only be held for Wall Street analysts or institutional firms that had a large stake in their company, that sort of thing. And believe it or not, Reg FD was very controversial at the time. There were smart people coming out publicly against Reg FD and saying, this will be a disaster for the market if we give mom and pop investors access to information at the same time we give it to experienced Wall Street analysts. This was something, and The the Motley Fool rarely gets involved in politics, but this was one of those times where politics crossed with individual investors and we felt like, as a company, this feels like something we should weigh in on. And we actually put out a statement, encouraged people to make a comment because the SEC had a public comment period, Um, and it passed by a vote of of three to two. Um, you, You would think Looking back, that they would pass five nothing, but it was three to two. Hmm. So, you know, to go back to where we are now, there's nothing I look back then. I remember thinking this is a no brainer. Of course, with the internet, with the technology that's only going to improve over time, of course, individual investors should have access to information at the same time Wall Street analysts get it. There's nothing I've seen so far with what's happening with Reddit and GameStop that I look at and think, oh, this is a no brainer and therefore X needs to change.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, so speaking of though, so I'll say March 2021, because I don't know exactly what day this is going to air. But in the month that we're recording this, we had uh, Reg D, I think it is, that increased the amount that individual investors are allowed to put into privately held companies or said another way an increase in the amount that privately held companies are allowed to raise from main street or retail investors or whatever so it was about a million dollars now it's 5 million dollars and same situation i'm kind of torn where do i stand on this new increase right so to your point the fed is saying we want to make sure that like privately held companies have the ability to raise capital the same way that other folks can go to vcs and and raise seed rounds and everything else and it makes it a little more inclusive and helps out some black and brown communities that wouldn't normally have access to raise money because friends and family round doesn't really exist the same way it does in other communities. But then I'm also looking at it from the standpoint of that individual investor who you would assume, pardon the phrase, I hate to use it, but this is the verbiage that the texts use who are somewhat unsophisticated investors, right? And so do they know all of what they're getting into? Do they know the risk that they're taking on by investing in a privately held, you know, super small mom and pop type company like you're talking about? And again, I just don't know where I come down on the Fed deciding to raise that cap, but it's another one of those things like FD, where it's a big change to what is allowed and allowable. And a lot of smart people against and a lot of smart people for, and we'll just have to kind of see where it lands.
3: Yeah, I think you always have to be mindful of guardrails for lack of a better term in the same way that a a new investor opening an online brokerage account is not automatically handed the keys to every investing tool whatsoever you know you, you can't just open up an account with insert name you know schwab whoever and just automatically, it's like great. You can you want to lever up on options? Like, yep, go do whatever you want, you know. So I think it is important in all aspects of finance to have some level of guardrails. And you know, it it is interesting to see sort of the ways in which we're seeing more companies raise money in different ways. You know, the, mm-hmm. there's obviously the the traditional IPO route, that we've had I mean, a year ago, I don't think I'd ever even heard the word SPAC. That eye, I. Um, and uh, it seems like every week now, there's a bunch more companies that are suddenly becoming publicly traded because they are SPACs. But those carry risks with them as well. And something that I say all the time, whenever companies suddenly become public companies, I say, good luck, because being a private company is a lot easier than being a public
2: company. Yeah, yeah. So we're told that this newish type of interest in the markets for Main Street, uh, if you will, is new and is being attributed to us all being stuck in the house with little to do for entertainment. Right. And also people being way more cash heavy than they typically tend to be since they can't go out and eat and travel and attend concerts and all that good stuff. So do you think this is an online phenomenon that's going to subside at some point as people get back out there and can move around and move freely and that sort of thing when the pandemic passes or. Is this more of a a thing that's here to stay and we just have to get used to the way that the markets move because of information moving on the internet now?
3: I think it's going to, if I had to guess, I would guess it would be one of those things that probably drops off a little bit just as people start to travel and do other things. And as you said, live their lives. I think it'll be higher than it was pre-pandemic. So it might drop down from the peak, but we're still going to have more people investing in the stock market, involved Mm -hmm. in these types of platforms than we had, say, in 2019, because we've seen this exact same thing happen in sports betting. You know, people, I know people who never placed a bet in their life before last spring, and now they are regular. They're placing bets every week, not huge bets, Mm -hmm. not bets that they can't cover if they lose, But same sort of thing. I think sports betting will drop off a little bit. I think it's hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube, to use an an overused phrase. I think the fact that people had enough experience in the market, Mm -hmm. yes, there will absolutely be people who get burned and then they say, I'm washing my hands of stock investing. I'm out of this forever. There will always be people like that. Uh, But I think uh, a lot of people are here to stay.
2: So, my final question for you, just kind of close this thing with some advice, if at all possible. You know, if you are at a cocktail party, right, or a fundraiser or some other type of gathering here in DC or Virginia where you are and uh, someone says, oh, you work at the Motley Fool, you know, I'm interested in investing, but I never know what numbers or details to focus on or how to know whether a company is actually good and not just hype. What do you suggest they focus on? The
3: first thing I would focus on in terms of the business, because at some point I would Make the point that I made earlier in our conversation about make sure this is money you don't need for five or 10 years. This is that you're thinking long term about this. But the first thing I would say is find a company where you understand the business. I think it is still, unfortunately, one of the great misunderstandings about investing in the stock market that the best investments are the secret company doing the cutting edge tech that you've never heard of. It's whispered to you at a party. No, the great investments of the past 30, 40 years are the companies that are right in front of our faces. It's Microsoft, it's Starbucks, it's Amazon, it's the businesses that that we're using. So make sure you understand the business. And then the second thing I would say is you got to understand how they make money and what their plan is for making more money in the future, because that's ultimately what's going to make the share price go higher. Every once in a while, I'll have the conversation with someone about like, what's the worst stock you ever owned? And for me, the answer to that question is not stocks that I bought that have dropped 50% or more or you know, are never coming back, mm. because I definitely have those in my portfolio. The worst stock I ever bought was a biotech company. I bought it nearly 20 years ago. I didn't understand really what the company did, because I don't have a great mind for science. <laughs> I owned the stock for about three months. And Malcolm, I swear to you, I was literally waking up in the middle of the night thinking about this company. I was <laughs> losing sleep over a stock that, by the way, had gone up. And I just thought, this is crazy. I'm losing sleep over an investment. I got to get out of this. I sold it at, I think, maybe a 30% gain, which, hey, that's a nice gain. I paid the short-term capital gains taxes because I was losing sleep over it. I didn't know wow. what they did. So always start with a business you understand and ask yourself, how do they plan to grow? How do they plan to make money in the future?
2: I have a feeling that's the same a lot of folks are going through right now with some of these high flyers that we've seen in the market, but I won't call anybody out by name or, or dwell on it. But I certainly <laughs> appreciate you uh sharing that wisdom. I appreciate you uh making the time to kind of help us out and make some sense of this whole thing, Chris. So I'm going to turn it over to Eric with an A to uh, take us home. Guys, this is fantastic. Chris, thank you so much for being an incredible guest. And of course, Malcolm, thank you so much for bringing him on the show. And our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Tech Money Podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you a little smarter
0: about your money.
1: This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcolmethridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge with the production, the editing and sound controls powered by top advisor marketing, CrowdMouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening.
0: um. you